to that passage that Gary has just read to us, to Samuel chapter 11. Uh, it's a fairly long narrative, a well-known story, I'm sure, to, to many of us, if not most of us. Um, lots of details in it that we need to look at together this morning, so please keep uh, the portion of Scripture open before you. I said I would say a little bit more about this evening's service uh, when I started, and, and so in, in God's providence today, um, which Shane and I only realized in this past week as we were preparing for Sunday, we are coming today to two passages in God's Word, in two different series in God's Word, which deal with exactly the same issue. The issue of sexual temptation, committing adultery, and falling into sin. But the two accounts from God's word reveal two very different ways to live and two very different outcomes for the individuals involved. And so my job this morning is to look with you at 2 Samuel chapter 11, at David's fall into sin, by committing adultery with Bathsheba and all the subsequent devastation which will flow from that as a result. And Shane's job this evening will be to look with us at Genesis chapter 39 at Joseph's temptation to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife and his victory over sin and temptation and the subsequent good that flowed out of that. And so as your pastor this morning, if that means anything to you, I want to appeal to each of you to please join us this evening for part two, where the real hope and the real victory of the gospel is presented to us who are God's people, who are called to live holy lives in the midst of a world which is so saturated with temptation. But for this morning, I want us to consider the anatomy of David's fall from grace. And it, it will simply be a, a presentation of the facts of David's fall in order to reveal to us and to warn us against these same patterns developing in our lives. And then tonight, as we consider Joseph, we're going to get to see much more positively what God desires of us as his people who face the same temptations as David, the same temptations as Joseph, but to learn from Joseph the key to living victoriously in a seductive world. And so the title that I've given to the sermon today is The Downward Spiral of Sin, uh, and I'm sure as, as we, we look at this downward spiral in David's life, you will recognize that the same natural tendency uh, in the heart of a young child, uh, if you've ever witnessed a young child as they begin to explore their sinful nature, but you're going to see the same pattern, the same tendency in your life, in my life as Christians, especially in times of spiritual decline and backsliding. And so as we consider this well-known story of David's fall with Bathsheba today, this account is meant to be a mirror for our own souls. Maybe for some of you today, in God's providence, as we work through this message today, in the timing of this sermon in your life, you are going to see so many parallels in your own life that you will think that someone has been feeding me secret information about you in this week. And if that is you today, I pray that God will convict you of your sin, that you will 
not only return tonight to find great help and practical instruction from the life of Joseph, but even before next week, the Holy Spirit will bring you to your knees, that is what I've been praying, in the brokenness of your sin and in humble repentance, repentance before the Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe for others of you today, as we've read the story, you might not see anything in David's specific situation which rings a bell. And so you, you might feel that you're off the hook this morning. You are happily single, happily married. You don't struggle with lust or sexual temptation at all. Well, then I hope to show you that although the context of David's situation is maybe very different to yours, the pattern or the shape of David's downward spiral into sin is exactly the same as yours, even if the details of the temptation and the sin which David struggled with may be very different to yours. So let's consider David's downward spiral of sin in chapter 11. And, and what I want us to see is that the dramatic turn of David from chapters 1 to, to 10 this did not happen suddenly. But in actual fact, it's been hinted at in the narrative from the very beginning. And so in the first place, I want to see that the decline of David started with David's disobedience. David's disobedience. Now last week, if you were here, you'll recall uh, in chapter 8 and chapter 10 that I mentioned that David was an obedient king to God's command as outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 17. That as he went out to battle, that he should not acquire many horses or great wealth. And so we saw that in all the victories that God gave to David, David observed the regulations of Deuteronomy 17 by killing the horses of the enemy nations and by dedicating all the gold and the silver and the bronze to the Lord. But Deuteronomy 17 verse 17 also said, And the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Now, as we've been working our way through 2 Samuel, the, narrative, the, the narrator sorry, has twice already dropped an account of David's disobedience to God in this area of taking for himself many wives. So by this point, if we patch together the various accounts of David's family record for us in Scripture, we find that David had eight wives who are named bearing him at least 13 children, another eight sons from additional wives that are not named, and still many more children from his additional concubines. So by the time we get to 2 Samuel 11, we discover that despite all the good that David has been accomplishing for God as his anointed king over Israel, David had a massive problem with women. Now, as the story unfolded, we should have perhaps picked up on this because we know from, from a number of biblical references as well as rabbinic literature that David's wives were extremely beautiful. And so while there is nothing wrong with having a beautiful wife, methinks that when you get to eight wives and counting, the problem is not the wives being beautiful, but with the man having a major issue with lust. 
David's harem is recorded multiple times in Scripture as a major indictment against a king who started off as a man after God's own heart. And yet in this one area of his life, he entertained ongoing disobedience to God, which eventually led to his downfall. So not only did David have a major problem with lust, if we trace the unfolding of the storyline, we find that David now is probably in his early 50s, and he has a 30-year track record of falling for and marrying beautiful women. Now, if you think about that, this means that there is an underlying thread to the story of David of unrepentant disobedience. He has been living a life of willful, ongoing, unrepentant disobedience to God. And so this pattern of sin continues to repeat itself again and again and again. Can I remind you why God specifically gave instructions for his king to not have many wives? Deuteronomy 17, 17, lest his heart turn away from Yahweh. So this really is where it all began to go wrong for David and where it all begins to go wrong for, for you and for me today. When we persist in ongoing, repetitive, unrepentant sin, irrespective of what that sin may be, it turns our hearts away from the Lord. Let's just remember who we are considering here this morning. This is David. This is the young man who burned with such zeal and fire for God, for the God of Israel, that as a young boy he killed a giant. This is the young man whom we read of in 1 Samuel 16, that from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. This is the man who penned many of the Psalms, deep treasures of spiritual intimacy with God. This is the anointed king of Israel who we've just considered last time brought rest and peace for God's people against all their enemies. And yet all of the spiritual privilege and, and blessing and zeal and accomplishment, it faded over the years and years and years of continued disobedience to the command of God in one area of David's life. Just one. And so this is very instructive for us today because isn't one of the lies of the devil today still exactly the same? Don't worry about that little sin in your life. You're under grace. It's not a biggie. At least in so many other areas of your life, you're such a good person. Look at all the good that you're accomplishing. It's okay to, to keep one or two sins alive. David's story reveals the futility of such thinking. For unrepentant disobedience to God always starts us off on this downward spiral of sin. And it always results in us turning our hearts away from God. And before we know it, we find ourselves in step two. Step two is dereliction. Dereliction it's just a word with a D. I needed another D. It means the neglect of duty. 
the neglect of duty. This is the next step in David's downward spiral of sin. We are told very clearly in verse one and two that springtime was the time when kings go out to battle. Who goes out to battle? Kings go out to battle. Kings lead their armies into war, as chapter eight and 10 has described David doing again and again and again. But as we saw last time in chapter 10, verse seven, this spring was different. This spring, David sent Joab. David neglected his duty as king. And instead of responding to the call of duty to go to war and to fight for God and his people, David sat on his couch all afternoon playing computer games until he fell asleep. Sorry, wrong era, but I'm sure it was just as trivial. I find it quite ironic that one of the top grossing computer games of all time is a virtual warfare game called, you guessed it, Call of Duty, which has sold over 400 million copies worldwide and generated over $30 billion in revenue. That's 400 million boys who, like David, are neglecting their real call to duty as men as men in this world, by playing a game which dupes them into thinking that they are actually men at war, when in reality they are just boys on a couch. David's neglect of his duty as a man, his duty as a husband, his duty as a father, his duty as a king, it flowed out of his neglect of his relationship with God. One of the realities of living with ongoing, unconfessed disobedience is that our relationship with God grows cold. We grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4. Our quiet times become mechanical and then irregular, and our prayer life becomes non existent. Our consciences become desensitized. And soon we find ourselves without the desire or the energy to fulfill our duties as men and as women of God. Now these first two steps become the breeding ground for Satan's attacks. And so in the third place, we see that the downward spiral continues to desire. David gets up off his couch late one afternoon. Maybe the TV stopped working because of load shedding. And so he now strolls around his rooftop in the cool of the evening. And he happens to see a woman in the neighboring property taking a bath. And we are told that the woman was very beautiful. Now besides the sequence of events which have led David to this point in the story, we could try and argue that what happened here on the rooftop was not David's fault. And on one level, that is true. Temptation often comes out of nowhere. It comes unexpectedly. Sometimes it, it presents itself right before our eyes. But it's what David did with that temptation which is fully his responsibility. It's not primarily what David saw that evening that is the problem. Because beautiful women exist in the world and sometimes they take baths outside. But instead 
of David spinning on his heels and bolting back inside and calling one of his maidservants to go and tell the lady next door that she's visible from the palace rooftop, we find that the temptation is cultivated into desire. Although it's not stated, it seems clear from the narrative that David lingered on the roof, that he began to imagine what it would be like if she was his, and he began to lust after her in his heart, and so he sent out to find, he sent his servants to find out more about the woman. What we have in verse 3 here is really just a, an ancient version of Instagram stalking back in the day. He, he sent and inquired after the woman. He, he liked her posts. He, he followed her. He inquired. He wanted more. Make some of you ladies think about how many followers you have on Instagram. She'd probably gone inside by now, but David wanted to keep the fantasy alive. And so he inquires after her, and his desire for her begins to grow. Now listen to how James describes this downward spiral of sin, and look at how it matches perfectly with what we see here in David. James 1 verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death, brings forth death. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So James is saying that an object of potential temptation, such as Bathsheba taking a bath, only becomes a real temptation to sin when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. Sinful desires fill our hearts. And this doesn't disappear when we become Christians, but we know that in every temptation, God is testing us and he will provide us a way out. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you or overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So where was David's way out of this temptation? Well, it was simply to just turn around and walk down back, back downstairs. That's it. But it's even more explicit in the text Look at verse 3. One of the servants comes back to David after he inquires after this woman, comes back and says, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now there are actually three stop signs presented to David in this servant's response. And it's especially clear in that the servant answers David's question with questions. Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam? Is not this Bathsheba the wife of Uriah? And is she not the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now each of the three parts of that question was meant to be a glaring way out for David. She is 
Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. You have no business with this lady unless you first approach her father. She is secondly the wife of Uriah. You have no business with this lady because she is the wife of another man. And thirdly, she's not just the wife of any other man. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who is an, an elite soldier in your army, David, one of your own bodyguard, which is why he lived next door to the palace, most likely. Now, there's no doubt in Scripture as to what happens when we do not take the ways out which God provides to us. James tells us desire when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. David's long track record of disobedience in this area of lust, it did not need any help to conceive in his heart. And so in the fourth place, we see the spiral continues downward into deed. And the narrative here is very matter of fact, um, but all the facts matter. Look at verse four. So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. After ignoring all the ways out of this temptation, David proceeded decisively to give birth to the sin of his desires. In the Hebrew, it's very clear, three verbs in quick succession. He sent for her, he took her, he slept with her. What a disaster. Everything David had accomplished for God over 35 years, the journey that he had walked with the Lord, the great heights that he had attained, and it's all thrown away for a one-night stand. Now, sadly, the reality of the downward spiral of sin is that it does not stop once the deed is committed. For the nature of sin is like a ravenous beast that only increases in hunger the more it tastes. And so we see in the fifth place, deceit. As soon as David has satisfied his insatiable lust for sex, the journey of deception begins for we are told that Bathsheba went home. David didn't take her and make her his wife, as he had done to all the other beautiful women that he had encountered along the way. He simply slept with her and then sent her home like an object, maybe with a plan to keep her on the side for when his other wives and concubines no longer pleased him. But David's secret affair is soon about to become public for Bathsheba conceives a child and sends David a message. I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. David knows it won't be long, maybe a couple months before the soldiers will return back from war and Uriah will arrive home to find his wife a couple of months pregnant. And David will be exposed not just having slept with a woman who was not his wife, but actually having stolen another man's wife, a man who was one of his most trusted soldiers, who was busy fighting for the king. There's no way David's reputation will survive this. And so his deceitful mind kicks into gear and he starts to execute a most devious plan to trick Uriah to sleep with his wife 
so that when he comes back from war, everyone will think the baby is his. Well, one of the great ironies of this story is found in these verses because no matter what David does to try and get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, who is very beautiful, he refuses. Why? Why does he refuse? Because of his loyalty and his faithfulness to God. David was the Lord's anointed king. David was the one who should have been fighting for God's people. David should have been acting for the benefit and the protection of his people. And instead, David is the one who prowls around like a lion on the rooftop of his palace, devouring a vulnerable woman whose protector has gone out to war to do David's job. Uriah is the one whose actions resemble that of a true king, of a true leader, someone who is not willing to indulge his own personal comforts and desires while God's army is at war. Just look at verse 10 and 11. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. He, he slept at the gate with your servants. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark of God and Israel and Judah dwell in tents. And my Lord Joab, the commander of the army and his servants, they camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live, King David, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Here we see the depths to which David had sunk. Because this response of Uriah should have caused David to, to come to his senses, to see the absolute wickedness of his own heart and actions. But instead, as Uriah swears on David's life that he would not do this thing, David engages the next part of his plan, which is to arrange for Uriah's life to be taken in battle. And I want you to see that this next step in the downward spiral of sin is much more than simply David's deceitfulness in trying to cover up his sin, but on a much deeper level reveals the deceitfulness of sin at its very core in our hearts. Sin blinds us from seeing the path that we are on. Right now there are some of you sitting here and you are blinded to the path that you are on. Sin blinds us to think that a little more deception, a little more scheming, a little more conniving, and we will escape to enjoy the fruits of our sin. But in the end, it only leads us to the next step in the downward spiral, which is that of destruction. Verses 14 to 26. These verses tell us, of the elaborate plan of David to get Uriah killed in battle, an act which also resulted in the murder of not just Uriah, but a whole number of David's soldiers who were killed alongside of him. It's mass murder that took place here because of David's deception. These verses also tell us how David dragged Joab into his web of deception and destruction effectively corrupting and destroying his own army general, who we will see in the years to come will cause great destruction in the house of David and Solomon. David's downward spiral also brought destruction to marriage and family. 
Verse 26 tells us that when Bathsheba heard that Uriah had been killed, she lamented over the death of her husband, as must of the rest of Eliam and his family. And David's actions also brought great destruction into the very heart of his own home, as we will see next week and in the months ahead, starting with the death of the baby that was born to Bathsheba. But this is not where David's downward spiral ends, and neither is this ultimately where it ends for, for us if we continue on this same path. For we are told in the final place that the downward spiral of sin always leads to divine displeasure. It may appear that God is absent from this story, from this chapter. He's not been mentioned until verse 27 which reveals that he was there all along and nothing that David did escaped his all-searching eye. When Bathsheba's mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. What a tragic verse to be placed over the Lord's anointed king, the man after God's own heart. We will see more of God's pleasure, uh, displeasure to David in uh, next week. But just so that we don't miss the incredible disaster of this chapter in the whole story of David's life, let me show you how the biblical record summarizes the life of King David. Look at 1 Kings 15, verse 4 and 5. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he did not turn aside from anything that God commanded him all the days of his life. Except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. What a tragedy to have the matter of Uriah the Hittite to be the final words spoken over the life story of David. The story ends with David under the divine displeasure of God. And no matter how good the fleeting pleasure of sin seemed for that one night, no matter how much joy and happiness Bathsheba might have brought to David in the years ahead as wife number eight or number 28, it all came at the great cost of family destruction and divine displeasure. And so as we conclude today, David's story might seem very far removed from, from some of you today and for others way too much like looking in the mirror. But either way, the downward spiral of sin remains an inescapable principle of God's universe. It starts with disobedience. Perhaps in the little things, a lustful look here, a little flirting there, a little telling a lie here, a little cheating there, a bit of porn here, a little bit of swearing there, a little bit of laziness here, the, the odd lotto ticket there, but the rot of disobedience sets in and so begins the downward spiral. That leads on to dereliction, neglecting your duties, your duties perhaps as a student 
or as a, an employee, your duties as a youth leader or, or Bible study or Sunday school teacher, your duties as a church member, your duties as a husband or a wife or a parent, ultimately your duties as a Christian. Disobedience and dereliction then leads you on to be ripe for sinful desires to breed in your heart. And so when the temptation presents itself, and it will, your spiritual immunity is down, your heart is vulnerable to attack, and desire begins to grow, and as you feed it and nurture it with the secret passions of your flesh. Can I just pause at this point and say a brief word to the young ladies and the women in our church this morning? And it's a word about the wonderful virtue of Christian modesty. Ladies, your beauty is a gift from the Lord. It's a gift from God to be enjoyed by you and your husband in the confines of your marriage. It's a great treasure that God has given to every one of you, and it holds great power for blessing in marriage. But it equally comes to you with great responsibility. Can I plead with you to guard your beauty? Don't flaunt it before the men and the boys of this world. We don't need any help to push us down the downward spiral of sin. Don't see how low your blouse can go, or how short your skirt can go, or how high the slit can go before you cross the line. Guard your beauty. Treasure your sexual purity. It is literally a secret weapon to keep you happily married, but it is also a weapon of mass destruction if used outside of marriage. And whatever you do, don't bath outside. <laughs> or whatever the modern equivalent of that looks like on social media. You know what I'm talking about. David's eyes are watching. Well, the next step is not far away. Desire, what does desire need to turn into deed? Not much, just opportunity. Maybe you're sitting here today and by God's grace, you've not yet committed the deed which you have contemplated and desired to do for such a long time. And the reason is simply because you haven't been given the opportunity. That's God's grace to you this morning. For if you are already at point three in the downward spiral, you don't have what it takes to resist the opportunity. You've been secretly longing for it. You've been planning for it. As God said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to overpower you. And you are weak and the deed will follow. But sadly, the road into sin and the road after sin is always filled with deceit. This is the native language of the devil himself and he is so good at training those who are spending their time on the downward spiral of sin. So how do you know how far down on this road of deceit and this path to destruction you may be this morning? Let me just ask you a few questions to examine your own heart this morning. Do you lock your cell phone and your laptop with a password so that no one in your family can access your device? 
Do you use in private and incognito browsing tabs or delete your internet browsing history? Have you turned on disappearing messages in WhatsApp? Have you got multiple devices, email addresses, and Facebook accounts to cover up your online identity? Are you exploring online dating without the transparency and accountability of mature, godly couples in the church? Are you chatting to or meeting people of the opposite sex for coffee without your parents or your spouse knowing about it? Are you drawing cash to buy alcohol or other items so that your spouse won't see it on the bank statements? Are you turning off your geolocation so that family members and friends don't know where you're spending your time? Are you lying about anything to anyone who loves you and who's taking an interest in your spiritual well-being? There's an old English saying which goes like this, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. The path of the downward spiral of sin always leads to destruction. The destruction of marriages, the destruction of families, the destruction of God's church, and eventually the destruction of your own soul. Because no matter how highly you think of yourself as a Christian, as a member of Honey Ridge Baptist, as a husband or a wife, no matter how much you think you are in control of the downward spiral on which you are walking, you are on the path of divine displeasure and you will never know the blessing of God upon your life. Well, this is where chapter 11 ends. And so this is where I need to end today, but this is not where your story needs to end. And so if God's word has convicted you today and revealed to you the path of destruction that you are on, Please don't suppress the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Please don't continue to deceive yourself and those around you. Confess your sin. Confess your sin maybe to your spouse today. Maybe it's to your parents. Maybe it's to a Christian friend who can hold you accountable. But most importantly, confess your sin to Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin before it's too late and the destruction it causes is massive. We will see next week that God's grace continued to pursue David and there was forgiveness and healing to be found. But the pain and the destruction of David's sin lingered for the rest of his life. But there is a better way it's a way we're going to explore tonight. So please come back tonight as we learn how God would have us to live as his children who walk in the blessing of his continued presence. Please come back this evening. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of this portion of Scripture, just challenged at the beginning to see the title for our series is The King Rises. Or the, today we saw the king fall. And Lord, if David, a man after your own heart, could fall so incredibly, 
so destructively. Who do we think we are to not take heed of your word today? So we thank you for it. We thank you for the warnings contained in it. Lord Jesus, when you left earth and you went to heaven, you said that you will send the Holy Spirit. And one of his primary tasks will be to convict the world of sin. Lord, won't you do that work in our hearts today? You know each of our hearts. You know exactly to what degree this message applies to us right now. And if not right now, how it will apply to us next week or next month or next year. And so we pray that you would have your way in our hearts and you would bring forth the fruit of the gospel and of repentance and of salvation, we pray. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.